to Greetings. Welcome to a new episode of the Classroom Critics Film Studies Podcast. My name is Bill Ivers, and I am joined today by my good friends, Walter Freeman and Andrew Martino, fellow teachers and fellow film buffs. Oh, and costumes by Edith Head. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while, gentlemen. So, um, you know, our, our profession, I think, leaves us with a uh, with little spare time, but sometimes you just got to say, I'm podcasting damn it and that's that which is why we're here today and i guess kind of kicking off the summer with um uh, a summer fill of sorts and i'm speaking of uh rear window 1954 directed by the incomparable alfred hitchcock starring jimmy stewart grace kelly thelma ritta and raymond burr time called this the uh possibly the second most entertaining picture ever made by Hitchcock, the first one being the 39 steps. And, you know, you know, as for me, gentlemen, I think this is the one, you know, if, uh, if when, when an alien species demands from me one film that sums up Hitchcock, I'm going to beam this one up, you know, so I, you know, it's, it's made, it was made at the height of his powers containing all of Hitchcock's essence, I'd say, you know, suspense, murder, dark humor, wit, of course, some of his important themes, voyeurism, right, which I'm sure we'll get to. There's the cool blonde, the everyman finding himself in over his head. But before we get to specifics, I want to bring up um, something really stuck with me. I watched this again. You know, I've seen this many times, but more recently I saw this and I, I really kind of struck me uh, as to how unique and experimental this film must have been for its time, right? So, you know, just in its premise, you have one setting, you know, an apartment complex in Manhattan, you know, from the point of view of one character who's completely confined to a wheelchair and therefore doesn't move much. Even in that one setting, you know, it's, you know, at the same time, it's still a compelling narrative, murder mystery, you know, in addition to the layering of all these other stories that unfold around him. And I'm not sure how many directors from this time would have been able to, number one, get this project underway, you know, to make this screenplay. And um, whether they'd be good enough to even pull this off. But I mean, this, this, is, this has to be considered extremely experimental for its time, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, I, I was thinking about it when I watched it again last night um, for the first time in a long time. It's been several years since I'd seen it. And um, I, I was asking myself if, if it was tougher for Jimmy Stewart to act in this role, being confined uh, into in a wheelchair, as opposed to having a more physical acting gig. Uh, and, and, and I still go back and forth on this, but the acting is, is just magnificent. Um, you, you mentioned the sets, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about the sets, but the, the acting is also just really, really well done. But the thing that really struck me this time is the lighting. And, and the way that, that um, Hitchcock uses lighting uh, throughout this film, just absolutely magnificent. Mm -hmm. and, and I wanted to touch base in my opening comments, Bill, about your comment that you would, you would pick this as the quintessential Hitchcock film. As I watch this film, it strikes me on two nights. On one hand, this film is absolutely quintessential Hitchcock. Yeah. And on another hand, it's not like anything else he's ever made <laughs> at the same time. I mean, he eschews a lot of the narrative leaps and camera tricks that he's famous for, but there's so many thematic elements and ideas in there. And so it's funny that, you know, I almost see this film two different ways. And again, as I said, some of part of it's quintessential Hitchcock and part of it is nothing like, unlike anything he's ever done. Right. Yeah. And it, that's a, that's a great observation because I, you know, there are the films where he has a very limited setting, mm -hmm. you know, lifeboat, et cetera. So I think, um, you know, that does sort of connect it to some other works. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that. It's, it's different, but it does contain, you know, all of his, <laughs> all, all the great tools in his toolbox. And, um, you know, and, and at the same time, it's just the, the whole feel of it. It's, it seems it's a very, um, I think, entertaining. I mean, all of the films are, are really entertaining, but, but I think this one is just at another level. You know, this, this film, whenever I teach this to my students, they, they're they're compelled from the start you know they 
and they leave it feeling extremely entertained. And they don't, that's not necessarily true for, um, for all of his films, at least with my students where, you know, sometimes they'll walk away from, they'll, they'll say it's good, but you know what, um, you know, Rear Window, that was the one, that was the one that really kept me glued to the screen from, from start to finish. And there's a lot of humor in this one. You know, I think all of Hitchcock's films do have that element of humor, but I think this one, um, you know, a lot, it's, it's nearly a comedy, I would say, you know, on, on, on Can one you level. think of any other film in the history of film that makes the audience as complicit in the storytelling as this film does? I mean, we're watching these things and the, with, through the exact same lens that Jimmy Stewart is, through, through Jeffrey's character is. Um, the, the only thing, the only film that I've ever seen that comes close, and it's not a film that's on the same level of this by any stretch of the imagination, is a, a recent horror film called A Quiet Place, where the audience becomes afraid to make a noise because of what's happening on the screen. Whereas in this, I mean, we're seeing these characters from the same distance. We don't get the luxury of an omnipotent camera zooming in to hear things that the protagonist can't hear. We're seeing the story unfold the same way he is. And I've just never felt as engaged filmmaking or film watching can be a passive experience. I've never felt as, as if I'm part of a film before. Martin Scorsese said that of all of Hitchcock's films, this is the one that you go back to again and again and always see something new. And I think that that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, from being, looking at the sets almost obsessively to, to the acting, to the music and everything that, that follows. And I got really caught up this time in, in the lives of a lot of the other characters, you know, looking at them as, as Jimmy Stewart's character, Jeffrey is watching them in the window. And I, I wanted to know more about those characters, especially the musician this time really, really intrigued me. And I think um, touching upon what you said, Walt, about um, becoming complicit with this, uh, you know, with, with what Jimmy Stewart's character, Jeff, is doing here. And I think we've got to start with, um, you know, just the brilliance of casting Jimmy Stewart in this role, because, you know, it's impossible to, to hate Jimmy Stewart, right? Right. Um, you know, even when he's using binoculars to, in, in a, in a, <laughs> in a telescopic camera lens to spy on neighbors. You know, if it was any other actor, we'd have a hard time getting on, on board with this. You know, we'd, we'd be creeped out by him. Uh, you know, but Jimmy Stewart plays Jeff straight, not like the character is some demented weirdo, right? He's just a, he's a decent guy, um, an adventurer, you know, uh, kind of a... Um, uh, you know, just a rough and tumble sort of uh, individual. And, you know, he's just a decent guy who's fallen down this rabbit hole. And we just, some, we, for some reason, we just sort of roll with it, even though we know it's <laughs> completely, you know, many levels, you know, whatever, moral, uh, creepy, however you want to put it. Um, and so we're just along for the ride and we're enjoying it. It's interesting you say that, Bill, because I, I found Jimmy Stewart in this, you know, the, Hitchcock goes a long way to show him as this person who takes, takes risks, right? That's how he got in the wheelchair in the first place. He's a photographer and he goes to these war zones and everything. And yet he can't take the risk with love, right? He's, this is a guy with a commitment problem. So what defines him, at least in his own mind, is his inability to or unwillingness to commit to a relationship, to bring somebody else in and to really share his life which I think really accentuates the isolation that we see of him at night, especially when he gets the binoculars out or when he's watching um, in his room and then he wheels his wheelchair a little bit back so that no one can see him. There's a, there's a, a, a resonant isolation there. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I see it, to build on that, Andrew, I see it as almost as an occupational hazard. This is a man who has spent his life viewing everything through a lens, yeah. capturing a moment that he himself is not part of. And then, of course, he's hit by a car and he's part right. of, he's literally part of it. And now he's sucked in. So he, he's, even though he's forced into a passive role, he's sucked into this story and he's forced to connect. But he's used to looking at life through a lens. And, and yeah. I think that's where his own internal moral code breaks down, that he, he feels somehow that he can do this. Because none of the other people, they all have the same opportunity to spy on each other. Right. And they're not seen doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. Isn't that, isn't that how he justifies it? The, you know, it's the whole idea of, um, well, my window's wide open. Uh, yeah. They can look at me if they want to. So, um, you know, why can't I look at them? He doesn't, does he, does he seem at any point in the, the film to sort of, uh, I don't have second thoughts about what he's doing. It seems like he's just 
entirely fine with it. He's an observer. That's his, that's what he does. That's his, um, you know, that's what guides him in life is, as you said, to be an observer of things. Um, so he doesn't seem to have really much of any um, qualms about doing it. No, I think he sees himself as, as this is a harmless uh, activity that he's taking part in. He's not writing it down. He's not taking pictures and publishing those pictures. He's basically sitting there um, occupying himself all day by making up these narratives, really, of what the lives of his neighbors are like. Exactly, right. Or what they might be like. It's just uh, the whole story that, you know, in characterization, in, in, in theme, it's just a, it's a, it's a mess. It's a masterpiece in terms of how everything is just so cohesive, you know, just yeah. it, yet it doesn't seem contrived. You know, everything right. just seems like, for example, um, just the concept of the fact, you know, just the fact that this piece takes place during a heat wave, uh, during the summer, it, just that alone is, you know, the, so much hinges on that. The idea that, okay, now everyone has to keep their windows open, you know, um, in the age before air conditioning is a common thing. You know, you, it just, it just sort of forces all these, these neighbors to, um, you know, just sort of have their windows so we can see into it. So, you know, Jeff can see into it. Hence we can see in, into their lives and we see a lot and all these lives are um, connected on some level, but I think a major theme with this piece is the lack of human connection, you know, yeah. starting with Jeff, all these characters are lonely, right? Lisa, she could be the loneliest character in the, in the entire piece, right? Um, obviously Miss Lonely Hearts is lonely. Yeah. Like, like Jeff, Miss Lonely Hearts is in her, you know, now in her middle age years, unmarried. Obviously she wants to be. And what an incredible moment when she's about to commit suicide. Mm -hmm but doesn't go through with it because she, because she's moved by by the music which i think is a you know just a whole other universe of a statement right there you know just the the power of art and why it's necessary and right. uh you know it brings us to the musician who's also alone uh trying to connect in his own way and like any artist you know he's trying to connect with an with an audience right he wants his art to be heard through in this case a song that he just can't seem to to get right uh he's struggling with it from the start of the film and then um the great payoff i think one of the great payoffs of this film when everything sort of is resolved which we'll get to i'm sure more extensively where miss lonely heart says to him you don't know what this music has meant to me you know it meant everything saved <laughs> her life saved her life right so you know then we have miss torso who seems to be you know we're sort of uh we're fooled a bit by this character, you know, at, at first we seem, you know, she seems to be like, uh, you know, this, this shallow stereotype, you know, who, you know, who's alone, but still has her pick of, uh, as it said, pick of the drones, right? But at the end, she does have someone, you know, she has someone who's not kind of like physically on her level, <laughs> kind of an unattractive guy. Yeah. But he comes home from the army, um, which that to me resolves everything with her, which says, you know what, she does have someone and uh, Miss Lonely Hearts is not the shallow person that you might have thought she was. She has depth to her. Which, um, and and his, his need when he gets there is not to immediately, you know, have sex with this girl, but to go and have something to eat from the fridge. <laughs> I'm really hungry. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So there's a word that I've heard of that this film strikes me is the word is sonder. And I'm sure you've heard of it where it's, you know, the, the sort of the melancholy realization that each person that you pass, a face you glimpse in a window, has a fully realized life in which you yourself are just a passing moment. And when that realization is, is almost like staring into the void. And to me, this, this film is like what happens when you see those faces in the window and you feel that, but then you start to see the fully realized actuality of their existence and, and there's a sort of a philosophical connection there as well and, and to I think to Jeff on an unconscious level he feels that that his him coming to understand them is justification for what he, he does because he's otherwise not too introspective about his activity mm -hmm. absolutely I think yeah I, I for me you know it's Hitchcock is making a commentary and I do think you're right Walter I think it's philosophical through and through about humanity and what it means to be human. And by that, I mean to say what it means to live with people. That as human beings, we are simultaneously a part of humanity and apart from it. That even, even, even with our spouses, we cannot be fully 
whatever that happens to be, totally engaged. And my, my sort of example is the newlyweds, right? Who, as soon as they get there, he, then he go back out and he carries her across the threshold. And then they pull the, the, the shade down. That's down for most of the picture. And he'll come out occasionally to smoke a cigarette and she'll call his name. And you can see the annoyance, right? That he doesn't have a moment to himself. That, mm -hmm. So there is something even off with somebody who is, you know, when the wonder of love is still fresh and new and, and burning its brightest, there is still something which keeps us apart from that loved one. And I think that Hitchcock is making this really, really intriguing um, uh, sort of, uh, he, he's talking about this in a way that really makes us think a little bit more deeply about what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I wonder why it, what it is. The single people in this film that you see, aside from Jeff, that you see through the window, are all creative types. You have a songwriter, a dancer, and an art. And then the married people are all. It, it doesn't seem like um, you know the couple that sleeps on the balcony, the newlywed couple, and then of course Thorwald, who murders his wife. They just seem to be uh, uh, different groupings of people. Yep. No, it's 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 brilliant and i like the, you know the artist the sculptor you know yeah. that quick glimpse of her little piece there called hunger you know it looks like a torso with a you know with 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 a uh, a circle you know a yeah. circle in the middle you know and i think you know it might allude to the idea that we all have this craving for human connection it's right. but it's so hard to obtain you know it's it's something we all need it's something you know there is that hole in us and um whether it could be fulfilled truly is it's tough to say for some people it's easier than others um but some people go their whole lives uh without it you know i've heard it said that you know a replacement for it and this is something that we know to be true is is reading you know and and you know you read to know you're not alone kind of thing or you read as harold bloom said you you we read to because we couldn't possibly we can't possibly know enough people to satisfy right. ourselves you know and that's and i agree guys this, this for me the theme of lack of human connection is one that really sticks out and you know john hayes the screenwriter you know along with hitch you know really explores this and and how and i think it's a particularly modern statement here with this even though it's 1954 yeah is the whole idea of how in our, in the modern world then even then that despite you know all our interconnectedness of our lives um whether it's in a city living in close proximity to one another or now um being connected technologically you know even andrew as you said even living sharing a life with someone in the same house same apartment despite all this we when it comes down to it we let we lay our heads on the pillow at night we we are isolated we're alone yeah. and um yeah i totally saw that with the newlyweds as well authentic human connection is hard to achieve and you know the chaos of the modern world makes it even harder despite the technological innovations and i almost uh when i was watching this i almost kind of in my mind connected made the connection with a zoom meeting you know uh right Jimmy looking out these windows you know kind of like <laughs> what, what, what we're doing now and how often we spend our lives you know looking at screens looking at um boxes that are supposed to contain something of someone else and you just ask yourself well how accurate is this you know right is this a poor substitute for real human connection and we we've all you know we've seen the articles that have come out in the last year about backgrounds to zooms right and how we choose to present ourselves which is you know we're, we're becoming even more artificial or inauthentic in that sense um that you know even even backgrounds that are real are staged in in, in a lot of ways and it, it, this gets to sort of the apartment, but as well as the title of the film, which is Rear Window, it's not Front Window, right? It's not looking <laughs> out to the, into the world. It's looking out in your backyard, in that courtyard in, in Greenwich Village, which is really this sort of microcosm, as we've suggested, but we haven't used that word. It's a microcosm for, for, for New York, which is a bigger, you know, a microcosm for the, for the United States. There's all kinds of class issues that are going on in this film. And we see this probably most resonantly with with Lisa and Jeff, right? And Jeff says, "We're not the same people." You know, you're you're Upper East Side. I'm I'm Greenwich Village, and those are you know polar opposites in a way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We the, the, to me, this film resonates so well in the modern world because we get the idea of the film. 
we live in a, and you guys have already alluded to this, we live in a voyeuristic society, but it's yeah. a controlled voyeurism. We can glimpse into each other's lives through these small windows, but what we're allowed to see is very carefully cultivated. I mean, how many times have you heard of people who have committed suicide, but all of their Instagram and Facebook posts are all about all their triumphs and successes and good times. But in this case, this is what, what happens when you see outside the frame, when you're, when you're watching, when people don't know you're watching. So I think audiences can really relate to the whole concept of peering into other people's lives. But like a good horror story, you take what's normal and you open it up and you show what's behind the normalcy, the clown in the sewer, so to speak. And this is, um, this is that. And, and of course, the consequences are catastrophic. You see, you see a marriage that might be crumbling. You see murder. You see um, dysfunction on a number of levels. And, and uh, you know, this is almost, uh, again, a very modern, sensible, modern sensibility in this film. Yeah, and there's the, there's the couple that we, we've, we've said before about the two that sleep on the fire escape at night because of the heat. Um, you know, they don't have children, but she has the dog. And, and it's, it's not clear why they don't have children. Maybe they, the children are older. Maybe they couldn't conceive, but the dog has certainly taken the place of their child. And, you know, when the dog dies, it's catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking listening to her, yeah, like, just shouting out to these neighbors. That, must, that might mean? be the most authentic voice of the writer coming out through her. You know, yeah. it's <coughs> the most um, stark, I guess, statement, perhaps the thesis statement of the film where she says, I can only paraphrase right now, but um, basically the idea was, you know, you, you don't care, you know, um, did you, did you, maybe you guys can help me out with something like, um, was it because she, she liked you or something like that? Um, yeah, it was something there. Something yeah, like that. that. And, you know, she was basically, um, you know, voicing just this, this idea that, you know, there's just such a lack of care. You know, you call yourself neighbors, we call ourselves neighbors, but yeah. we, we don't care. We don't, in our, our heart of hearts, when it comes down to it. Um, it's all a farce, you know, and it's true, you know, we can live our whole lives, you know, we can live, live a couple decades right next to the, you know, the same folks in the house next door and never really know them. That's and right. There's so much superficiality about that. And I bet if you'd asked the neighbor, Thorwald's neighbors, what he was like, they would have been on the news saying, oh, he was a great guy, paid his bills on time, quiet, always said yeah. hi in the halls. And yeah. the detective says that. The detective says that when, when he's confronting Jeffrey about that. He goes, this is a guy who pays his bills on time and, and is, you know, keeps to himself mostly. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, we think we know the people around us and we don't. Yeah, we don't. We know their rhythms. You, you can, like, if you ever lived in an apartment building, you know when people are walking around and what's, what's a sort of, you know them on a particular level. Right. Uh, glimpses that are perhaps unintentional. Yeah. And, and, uh, and yet, who knows, you know, what's actually going on behind those doors. Sure. And maybe sometimes you can pick up threads of an argument through the thin walls. But, but you, you also know the rhythms. I love that word. Well, you also know the rhythms of when they eat because you can smell the food being cooked. And so you do know them on an intimate level, but it's not, it's, it's only one kind of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a little bit of it's unintentional, you know. Right. Somebody walks a little bit heavily in the apartment right. above you. I, I used to call the guy that lived above me Brickfoot. Uh, <laughs> I swear he had bricks on his feet when he walked. Um, yeah. So. yeah. I, I, can I talk a moment a little bit about Jimmy Stewart? The, the, you know, he, Jimmy Stewart is always famous. He's the everyman, but he wasn't afraid to explore a little bit of his dark side in, in films, even It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. You know, we see very dark Jimmy Stewart, but maintains this likability that's unheard of. Now, people compare Tom Hanks to that, and Tom Hanks has played at least one dark role, I think, uh, or two in Cloud Atlas and maybe Road to Perdition. But I don't know if any other actor could pull this role off because he's really not a guy you should be rooting for. But just like Lisa and Stella and to some degree Doyle, we get sucked into this narrative. I mean, Stella and, and Lisa heartily join in on the spying. As do we. We do, We would if, if Hitchcock cut away from this, the audience would just say, "I'm, I'm done. I'll walk yeah. out." Um, who who else true. would Stuart could have pulled off that? I mean, put um, 
uh, Norman Bates, help me out. Anthony, Anthony, Perkins. Anthony Perkins. Yeah, just slide him into this role and you have a different movie. 100% yeah. different film. You have a sexual cre- predator. That's right. Right. Because right. he came across, he did it so great in Psycho. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's even, a voyeur scene in Psycho, too. Even if he was never in Psycho, you know, if he, um, it's just, it, just the type of actor he was, you know, it, it just it makes it an entirely different film. And I can't imagine that um, Hitchcock wanted anyone else except Jimmy Stewart in this, right. in this role. You, you put in, um, put in Cary Grant and suddenly it takes on uh, a sexual undertone. Yep. Put in uh, someone on the other end, uh, like say, um, unlikely, but say Fred Astaire. And you wouldn't believe him capable of doing it. Right. Yep. Or so, someone, someone, you know, Jimmy Stewart here is right on the cusp of him being kind of like the, the older Jimmy Stewart, you know? Yeah. But if he was any older than that, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's an, perhaps an ageism thing. He becomes a creepy old man. Right. Yeah. But uh, he's still youthful enough and likable enough. Where we're just, again, we're, he's Jimmy Stewart. What, what he does is fine. <laughs> Even those yeah. looks at, at Miss Torso never get, I, for me, never cross that boundary into even almost creepy. You know, you're almost like, okay, he's, he never goes that far. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. Jimmy Stewart plays this wonderfully well. Yep. And I, he, he, teases, he teases Miss Torso's sexuality to Lisa towards the end. Yeah. Uh, and to Stella, but he never makes it lecherous, even though there's right. a, a lecherous quality to it. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yep. Which I'd like to discuss a bit. You know, I think this film is an absolute masterclass when it comes to, well, many things, but one in particular, it's a, it's a masterclass on how to use the point of view shot. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I, I mean, I would think that much of this film was shot with, okay, um, with, with the, the camera on, Je- on Jimmy Stewart, on Jeff, and, you know, he's being told, okay, now you're looking at this. Now you're looking at this. And perhaps the things that were being shot across the courtyard were shot perhaps on a different day, perhaps with Jimmy Stewart, not even on set. Um, so I guess editing, uh, it's a masterclass in editing, which of course is that's, that's, that's Hitchcock's, you know, that's, that's why he, he is what he, what he was. But the whole idea of, um, you know, okay, you're, you're, you're reacting to this, you're reacting to that. And, and how much of the story hinges on the right reaction by Jimmy Stewart and how he chooses to react to certain things and how much that could have changed the story. Because, you know, as we've talked about before in a previous podcast, you know, Hitchcock, you know, coined the term pure cinema, Mm -hmm. the idea that you can tell a story, you should, you know, if you can rely mostly on visuals, if you can explain it through a visual, don't necessarily rely on dialogue and there there are so many stretches in this film where it's just what we're seeing and what you know more specifically what jeff is seeing and just his you know his reaction shots the point of view shot it just really helps tell the story his little smiles his little smirks you know he'll you know just to name one humorous example you know after newlyweds are back for a little while as you um you mentioned this earlier andrew the the husband opens the window for a smoke and he sticks his head out for about three seconds. And yeah. we, then we hear the, the bride's voice and we, he, you know, we see another, we see the reaction shot of, of Jeff, which tells us, see, it says everything yeah, about right. his character. See, this is, this is why I'm not married. Yeah. This is why I know better. And uh, it just, it just says so much about who he is as a character. And this, it's done constantly throughout this movie. I wonder, because I know that I read where uh, Hitchcock had the actors in the windows wearing uh, flesh-colored earpieces so he could direct them yeah. from a distance. I wonder if he didn't use a two-camera setup where, so he could get very authentic reactions to the action from Stuart um, because it's seamless. There's a lot of films where you can tell that two actors were not even in the same room on the same day, just, mm-hmm. uh, just enough of a, of a hesitation that you can tell. Whereas in this, it seems seamless. And if he, if he pulled it off without them being in the same room, that's even better. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, that seems like something Hitchcock would do. I'm not sure if anyone knows out there, please write us. But uh, um, either way, it's perfect. These reaction shots are perfect. Um, and uh, brings up the drama, the humor and the entire spectrum of, of, of the drama in this film. 
you know, you mentioned point of view, and I find it so important in this film for the reasons that, that you've mentioned, but also the fact that as Jimmy Stewart is watching, his character, Jeffrey, is watching all of these people, we are also watching Jimmy Stewart, right? So the voyeurism is also the audience, and, and he becomes just another occupant of, of this uh, apartment complex. Uh, and, and we're sort of in our own apartment, and that window is the television, right? And we're watching him the whole time. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. So there is this meta quality going on that obviously, I mean, Hitchcock must have been aware of. Yep. Oh, it has to. I mean, because again, yeah. how, how do we forgive this level of, of intrusion right. is that we also want to see the stories. Right. You know, we're like, okay, I, I get it, Jimmy. This is interesting. What's Miss Lonely Hearts up to today? Uh, you know, what's going on with the musician? And so when, when we watch, we settle in, and is to marry that with what Bill said, you can definitely see the silent film sensibility here of, of stories being told visually. Um, you get glimpses of dialogue, but they're not that necessary to, to know what's going on. Right, right. Yep. This could there be a silent film. There are profound moments of silence in this film, especially those night scenes when he's by himself. Mm-hmm, Definitely. And um, yeah, I mean, getting back to, I, I certainly want to comment on the set itself. Um, I'm not sure if it was before we were live, but um, it was mentioned just how, at some point, how incredible this set was. Uh, or, you know, it's what, six, seven stories? Yeah, something like you know, that. I, I mean, it first begins with Hitchcock's need to um, have full control and, and not rely on necessarily elements. Of course, he could have shot this actually on location. But um, he wanted, you know, he wanted full control. And so he, he built it. He built an entire um, apartment complex based on a, uh, a Greenwich Village. Um, I can't tell you the exact address, but the Christopher exact Street, 125 Christopher Street. Okay. All right. Yep. God, I'd be interested in checking that out. Going you know, it's street. right. It's interesting because Christopher Street has this whole history for LGBTQ because it's where the Stonewall um, tavern is and, and, and the, you know, with the, the riots when Stonewall was um, seized by police, for lack of a better phrase. Mm -hmm. And this whole area is very LGBTQ friendly. So there's this bohemian quality to it that we do get glimpses of, I think, in this film. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's the, good the artists in residence. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And just the, the, the little detail. I mean, this, it, it was built to look like whatever. <laughs> decades old yeah. um it it you know there there are pigeons <laughs> which i for me whenever i see it it's always like oh you know a little hint of what's what's to come <laughs> yeah you know whatever uh nine years later with the birds uh i just love the little detail that he leaves a gap between a couple of the buildings so whenever you see the camera kind of go down you see an actual city street with yeah. pedestrians and even cars coming by that's amazing yeah it just i mean that that little amount of depth right there just really, really helps things. And it really seems like uh, when it's raining, it seems like it's raining. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the lighting is masterful, as you said, well, and uh, I, I, you know, you could, you can sense the summer heat somehow throughout all this. It's just, um, it's really brilliant. I think so, the so set was, uh, I think they spent a little over a hundred thousand dollars to build the set. And, and, and they had to dig up the floor because the set was too big for the studio. And there's just so much that went into it. Yep. yep. Yeah, they, um, I guess, miss, uh, some of the apartments were actually, they had electricity, they had running water, they right. had furniture. Um, I guess uh, Georgina, um, I'll have her name here, Miss Torso, Georgina Darcy said that she actually just lived in the apartment between takes just to make it seem like she's, you know, sort of method piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before method was method, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I look, you compare this bill to, to The Birds, and, and while I think The Birds is a great film, I think this is, this is a more of a believable film um, in terms of the tension. On it. The Birds is, you know, obviously got a fantastic conceit to it. There's a lot of characters in The Birds that don't ring to me like characters you're going to see anywhere else. And whereas here, this is just seemed to me like these are very realistic people. I mean, even... Raymond Burr's Thorwald is not a mustache twirling villain. He's he goes about everything from whether it's murdering his wife to cutting up her body to burying her head in the backyard as if he's just going about his day. Yeah. Yep. And he's not relishing in his evil. He's, he's got his private life or the suggestion of another woman. 
He's, he's got money troubles. Um, he's being blackmailed, but he's like, I can't, I can't give you any money. And he never, he never goes beyond uh, an ordinary guy who did something out of the pale. Yeah, I'm not yeah. being reductive about a murder. I'm saying that just, he doesn't play it that way. Yeah. This is a, this is a lived in world that we're, we're, we're dropped into, you know, I mean, just, I mean, along just the fact that once we're dropped into this world, Jimmy Stewart's already in the, in the midst of his voyeurism, right? It's, yeah. He's already, he's already been at it for a while, right? Isn't that the impression you get? It's not like we're discovering the, um, this hobby along with him. No, he's been, he's been doing this perhaps for the, the entire week prior, you know, and we're just sort of, uh, dropped in at that yeah. right, um, right time. And, uh, everything from, let's say, um, not like the, the music, right. It's all, it's all source music. It's every note that we hear yep. is from someone's apartment, whether it's a radio, whether it's the piano player and their hits of the time, you know, so we're, we're, we're hearing music that these people would be enjoying, uh, during this particular there's no um i mean i think perhaps the opening score and the uh or the opening music and the closing credits you know that is certainly um scored music or um overdub music but everything else it's it's from someone's apartment yeah um the ambient noise i think is is brilliant just you know we we we, we hear life you know and it's just the illusion of a real actual manhattan apartment is is all there and aside from, say, some fashion or maybe car styles, this is not a time capsule film. This film could be occurring yeah. today, still with this level of intimacy beyond our electronic connectedness. Um, still buildings like this, still courtyards like this. There's still fire escapes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people living in a bohemian existence who maybe are, you know, I'm a starving artist. I don't have an air conditioner. I'm going to sleep on the balcony. Right. I mean, yeah. a fire escape. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, okay. So I hate to bring up something horrible, but wasn't this movie remade recently? I I have not seen it, but um, I know Christopher Reeve and uh, somebody else. I can't think of who it is. Yeah, but and it didn't do well. And Christopher Reeve, he had already had his accident by then, so. That was the sort of impetus to put him into this. Um, yeah, yeah. And then just most recently, we've had The Girl in the Window, which is on, I think it's on Netflix, or it's, it's one of the streaming services, which obviously is, is playing up to this. But it's, it, in my estimation, it falls far short. Daryl Hannah. Daryl Hannah, of all people. Wow. <laughs> and Robert Forster. Uh, okay. This and Psycho was remade. What's with remaking these... <laughs> untouchables Hitchcock classics. Um, but you know, I don't, it's, it's, you can't top this, uh, this one here. So, um, let's, um, I'd like to talk a bit about Jeff and Lisa's relationship and the arc of, uh, of that relationship and, you know, how that's eventually resolved and also how some of the other characters lives are resolved. And I think one of the strengths of this film is, um, you know, everything at the end is resolved in, in a way where we're satisfied. Uh, I think all the thematic elements are really, you know, communicated well with the resolution, but it, it doesn't seem too neat. It doesn't seem too, you know, and they live happily ever after. Right. Um, but it is satisfying. But um, Jeff and Lisa's relationship, they, um, you know, I think it's, there's a tragedy there, you know, or, you know, you wonder where it goes after the film ends because we, you know, it seems like both of them learn to connect on, um, you know, in different ways by the end of the film. Uh, Lisa becomes an, an adventurer, right? Yeah. She goes way out of her comfort zone and Jeff finally sees, well, you know, okay, there is another part of her. Maybe she can keep up <laughs> with my lifestyle in a sense. But I just love how at the end, you know, it, it just shows you, you know, again, Hitchcock's brilliance, how you can resolve an entire story, all these little, you, you know, worlds of, uh, of drama with just visuals. And one of them is um, the relationship between Jeff and Lisa, where it shows, okay, 
Um, Jeff, you know, he has the other cat, you know, the leg in the cast, so he's going to be there for a while. And, uh, it, you know, the camera moves over to Lisa, and we see her um, kind of in an adventurer's kind of garb, right? I, Reading an adventure novel or an adventure book, right? Something yeah. in the Himalayas or... Yeah, it's, it's yeah. some sort of magazine there. But I, what I love is, you know, the fact that she puts that down when he's... when. <laughs> When she when she knows that he's asleep, and what does she do? She picks up Vogue, right? Yeah, I, I think you know which shows Vogue you, well, or Bazaar, yeah, something like that. And um, you know, it's, it tells us, well, you know, I've you know, I've I've changed, and or you know, I'm I'm willing to be an adventurer to do all this, but you know what? I'm still me. You know, I'm you know, he didn't change me too much, sort of thing. And I just love how. Um, uh, let's say you know Miss Lonely Hearts. Uh, she's resolved brilliantly, I think, with uh, with the musician, as yeah. I mentioned earlier. Um, what else? The uh, the other couple they get a new dog. Yeah, <laughs> trying to teach teach the dog how to kind of go down the basket. How the 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 other one used to. Um, what else? What oh the obviously Miss the Miss Torso resolution, yeah. which I think is is awesome. It's just these these great little payoffs. Just they're they're repainting Thorwald's apartment. That's right. Yeah. Which is there's a shot, and again, we're talking about Hitchcocky and uh, uh, techniques. And one of the things that he has always done that he does in this film very well is is the the economy of storytelling to get across complex situations. Like in North by Northwest, it's just a momentary mistaken identity that sets things in motion. In this, one of my favorite connect the dot moments is when uh, Lisa's in the apartment, she's got the wedding ring, she's being busted by the cops, Thorwald's there. And she holds her hand behind her back and wiggles her finger to show him she has the wedding ring. But Thorwald sees it and then looks up and sees Jeff watching. And suddenly the stakes are raised. We know that we're coming into, you know, we know that Thorwald's coming over at some point. Yeah. And, and the tension builds from there wonderfully. Yes. But I just, I just love that moment where it seems like, oh, here's such a little sneaky thing I'm doing. And she, it totally blows everything, ties it all together. Mm-hmm. If we're watching this in a modern movie, we'd have 20 minutes of explanation to get Thorwald over right. at Jeff's apartment. Right. <laughs> we'd have exposition and we'd have villain monologuing. But we don't. He comes but in you, there. That whole moment, that, that, uh, that was one of my favorite moments in the entire film. One, I think it's when, when, when uh, you know, Thorwald is his most sinister, is when he looks at the ring and then looks up. Yeah. Uh, into the apartment. I think even when he confronts Jimmy Stewart in the apartment is not as sinister for me as that moment before that. Oh, and then the fantastic. other part to keep with the the, the Jeff and, and Lisa relationship, I can't help but think that she's so caught up in this narrative, this adventure narrative, that at any time, even when she's being attacked, she's not quite taking it seriously. That she thinks somehow this will end, right? That she'll be saved, that she's acting and, and she's acting in this sort of play that, that Jeff is, is directing. And it, it, it's much more serious than she really realizes. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a novelty-seeking kind of thing. Right, exactly. You know, yeah, she's right. always lived in this very um, sheltered world yeah. where she was, she's never been any, in any real danger and probably right. can't even imagine that, you know, no one would hurt me. No one would kill me, right. you know. Um, yeah, I like that. And I, I, yeah, the, the, the glance up into Jeff's apartment is, I mean, can you imagine the gasps in the theaters back yeah. then at that one moment? She is giving him what he wants. He's yep. not attracted to her. Right. And so she's giving him the voyeuristic thrill and then he's all over her after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what the best part about all of this is until that moment, until that glance from Thorwald, there's always was, it was a level of doubt as to whether he actually did it or not. Right. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah, and that's that's brilliant. It's never given away too soon, until it has to. Isn't be. that the closest uh, shot of him up until that point? We don't. I think it, never, yes, it is. Yeah, we've never really seen his face. Um, you know, unless it was from a great distance until right. uh, until that moment. He, there's a couple of shots with him walking in the corridor to get to his apartment where Jimmy Stewart's looking through the telephoto lens, but he's always looking down. So you don't get the shot like this. Um, this is a revealing shot. You know, yep. this is, he's revealing who he is. Exactly. Have you ever had the dream where the monster's chasing you and you hide and then you're looking and then the monster looks right at you. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had that dream, it's very disconcerting. And uh, that to me was when the monster 
the first time he makes eye contact and with you, AKA Jimmy Stewart, the proxy audience. Yep. And it's a gut turning moment. Yep. Really uh, my is. favorite. You're almost my, ashamed that you've been caught. Yeah, yes. Right. I would say one of my favorite shots of Thorwald um, is when we don't actually see his face. So it's, you know, Jimmy Stewart's looking out at night into his apartment, which is completely dark. Yeah. And all we see is the, the short glow of his cigarette. Yeah. You know, the little red dot in the middle of that window that comes and then fades. So um, what a, what a cool little detail that is. And you, yeah. and you'd miss it. You would totally miss that if you didn't, um, you know, if you blinked, yeah. but you know, it's just kind of like almost like that idea of, okay, he's there, but you don't see him. Um, it's almost, there's almost kind of like a, I don't know, telltale heart sort of element there where the, the devil is in the darkness. Um, but I just, it happens twice. I, th I think it's a really cool, uh, yeah. cool little moment. So I want to sort of bring up something controversial or maybe controversial if I can. So Jimmy Stewart gets top billing uh, for this on, on all of the movie posters as, as you know, we expect, but I want to argue that the actual star of the film is actually Grace Kelly, not Jimmy Stewart. That it's really a, a kind of homage to Grace Kelly, not even Grace Kelly, the, the, the character that she's playing, but I think, and not to get too, you know, to subscribe to this sort of track, this narrative too much, but um, Hitchcock's well-known obsession, not only with blondes, but with Grace Kelly in particular. She's mm -hmm. the sort of, uh, you know, uh, the, she's the Lolita in his life uh, in, in a major way. The last shot of the film is of her. Um, we, we get, a, she doesn't come in in the first part, you know, but we hear all kinds of, of details about her from, from Stella and, and, and uh, Jeffrey talking and all of that. And that, so we're built up to have this idealized woman that comes in. And I think, you know, everything from, from how Edith had decided to, to costume her all the way through, I think she's the real star of the film. I think. Well, she certainly does the most heroic act. Yep. You know, um, Jimmy, <clears throat> right. you know obviously Jimmy Stewart's character obviously cannot, um, you know, and I, I just, I love the shot where she's, you know, we just talked about it where she's in the apartment and she's getting uh, manhandled yep. by Thorwald and just um, how Jimmy Stewart is just so helpless. You know, he wants, he wants to get up. He wants to go save her, but all he can do, you know, and this kind of plays into the entire theme. All he can do is watch. <laughs> he's impotent. All he's, all he's been doing. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, um, a metaphor for impotence. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, but to get back to your question, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, you know, top billing, you know, it, it was reserved for, you know, the biggest star of that right. time. And uh, I couldn't say for sure where Grace Kelly was on that, that hierarchy there. Um, but I mean, this is, this is Jimmy Stewart in his prime, right? So it would be right. tough to, um, tough to, uh, you know, get someone billed over him at this point. But in terms of story yeah i mean I, I think she is the uh she is the true hero and of course and she's the adventure right she's the real adventure that he's missing out on or that he willfully <laughs> is missing out on that's true and uh he, he's not excited by her until right. she enters his purview of, of voyeurism <clears throat> yep. you know of all the hitchcock's obsession with the cool detached blondes i think she's the most approachable she's the yeah. one that you feel that you could actually have a conversation with you know, she's playful, she's passionate, she she wants Jimmy Stewart, she's not detached in the least. Yeah. Typical yeah. Of, of his later, uh, or some of his other heroines. Right, and, and, yeah, think of Tippi Hedren, right, who, who who plays a very similar character with a privileged background and, and kind of marries down, for lack of a better phrase, but she plays it much differently from, from how Grace Kelly plays it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kelly well, brings a real sort of warmth. Yeah to this character and, and you know, she's kind of, she's got her own dark side. She joins in in the, on the yep. voyeurism. She's as does the housekeeper. I know right. that Stella, but she's, she never judges him right. or, or thinks that it's creepy and weird. She, she right. you know, it becomes kind of a game. You know, there's another moment too with Stella where it's, it's a bit of a game to these folks, even from the wiggling the finger with the wedding band on. Yeah. But for Stella, the, the moment that she realizes what was in the hat box, 
Yeah. And I think the detective says something, yeah, would you like to look? And you want to go look at it? Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly I think for her, that's like, oh, we've been looking yeah. now. Now we've seen. And the, and the thought of what she would actually be looking at, I thought that was pretty gruesome. Yeah. Especially for 1954. I think there's a lot of innuendos here that are both sexual and, and gruesome, violent, that are just, I, I was kind of shocked watching it again last night about how, far Hitchcock went yeah the first shot of Miss Torso where she just yeah. turns her back to the camera yeah. and bends over I'm like this is PG movie a P yeah. or G that, that was pretty, <laughs> lack of a better word pretty cheeky yeah uh, <laughs> so yeah I think I'm um, getting back to the uh, to Grace Kelly's performance you know she plays the she does not play the character as as snobby you know and yeah. the character on the page could very well have been interpreted that way you know she says some things that only a socialite could really say um but she does seem like uh you know a life-affirming um you know fun to be with kind of in you know individual and I, I think it's very important for us to for the audience to to you know to, to kind of see what jimmy stewart's character is turning his back on yeah you know, if she wasn't this, you know, extraordinary person, I don't know. Um, I guess we'd have a hard time understanding why he would do that. I think her love for him is genuine. Genuine. She's not attracted to the quote-unquote bad boy who goes off to these dangerous missions, although that might be part of it. But I do think that she's in love with him for, for, genuine, for genuine reasons. But I think she's frustrated because he's probably the first man she's ever met that she can't turn on. That's probably, yeah. Until yeah. she's in danger and then he's yeah. aflame. Yeah. yeah. She has a great introduction in the opening montage where the camera's kind of panning around Jimmy Stewart's apartment and we see things. Is first we see a framed negative. And it's, yeah. And then it cuts to the magazine cover of the negative. Yeah. And you see sort of the negative of her and then you see the image of her and then you put together a lot of things she's a model he's a photographer he's he's a renowned photographer you know why else would you frame a negative that's and a great point yeah it's just a nice intro yeah nice and, and well. film film speed is is used uh is, is varied a little bit this film in a couple of places and, and the first one that we see is the first time we see her other than the picture is her coming down for a kiss while he's sleeping and it's in slow motion yeah which is very stylistic uh, and, and not something that you see often with Hitchcock. And then the other one I'm thinking of is at the end when, um, you know, when all the, the action is happening with um, him falling up, falling out the window before vertigo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we see people rushing out of the apartment. Hitchcock, for some reason, decided to speed up the film there, which I don't know if I like. I might be one of the only nitpicks that, uh, of the film that I, that I would kind of point out. Um, because I think sometimes when you play with the speed of film, especially when you speed it up, uh, you're suddenly in um, comedic, um, yeah. you know, kind of like silent film comedy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't seem like he needed to. And then, and of course, technically, there's two shots that are clearly superimposed. One is of the helicopter. Yeah. And then the other is shot of the falling. film. Yeah. Yeah. And him falling um, yeah. is also very, very much a super, superimposed thing, which takes you out of it for a sec but i think it's just the limitations of filmmaking at the time i didn't think the helicopter shot was needed at all i i, I get why he put it on but i don't think the film would have suffered at all without that shot no yeah. no no we we buy into that being a real place with a yeah. real sky overhead yeah um maybe the sound maybe the, the audible sound of an airplane going yeah. by would be fine and we wouldn't even need that we're we're with them um Hey, uh, who are we to criticize Hitchcock, right? <laughs> if these are the only things we can pinpoint as uh, as flaws, which are you know aren't much of any flaws exactly. Uh, I love the shot when Thorwald comes into the uh, into Jeff's apartment, part of the the apartment complex, and he's coming to the door, and we see the shadow yeah. under the you know just the the shot of the shadow under the door on the little gap, and then the uh, the door opening up. You know, that's why he's the master of suspense. He just, yeah. he knows how to, you know, uh, convey these little details. The and sounds of the footsteps. Approach. Yes. Yep. 
Yeah. So I, I want to talk about that for a moment. So first of all, something cool I read, whereas he put people into a room and shot flashballs at them and asked them, what did they see afterwards? And because he originally had a bunch of dotted white lights on the screen and they told him, no, it's an orange circle. Yeah. We see an orange. And so he made that the, the effect, which is nice. I think it works very well. Yeah. Um, and at first I was, I didn't like the fact that Thorwald kept getting thwarted by the exact same device flash stops rubs his eyes takes a few steps forward flash rubs his eyes and it's like five four or five times he does that and at first i thought you think he'd maybe not fall for it again but then i realized he's not a pro at this he's he's a man who he, he's a workmanlike human being he workmanlike murdered his wife and now he's confronting it all crashing down. He's not going to think like a supervillain. He's going to make mistakes. Right. And so at first I didn't like that. And then I, I realized it, it fit very well. Yeah. And also it helps that he's a man who has poor, uh, poor eyesight that's written into his character, which might be a little bit plot convenient, but it also works that yeah. it would be especially blinding to him. <laughs> so. And it just, just puts him off enough for the, well, it doesn't, he's, he, he does throw <laughs> Jeffries out the window. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder he had vertigo. <laughs> so I want to bring that. So let me ask you about the last shot, because again, th this film pulls off some very tricky things. It makes us complicit. It makes us not dislike someone who is morally wrong. Um, and in the end, he doesn't get, he gets a little bit of just desserts. His other leg is broken and you would have to imagine his bad leg was rebroken because there's a different cast on it. There was a signed yeah. cast at the beginning and it's not signed at the end. So it must be a, must've rebroken it, but uh, sleeping like a baby in <laughs> yeah, the end. Right. And the only thing I can think of is the old saying, curiosity killed the cat, satisfaction brought him back, but he's sleeping the sleep of the just with a smile on his face. And I thought to myself, why am I happy to see that? <laughs> with the with the um the music swelling at the end you know it's it's a film that ends again the resolution is is really satisfactory you yeah. know it, it is a happy ending yeah you know, and she's with him ending. right she's there yeah she's with him yeah yep it's a happy ending for everyone there except Thor. i mean so you know all the wrongs are are righted and it's just which you know that that is a um a somewhat unique thing for, for a Hitchcock uh, film, right? I mean, um, a lot a lot of times these films are, you know, end with ambiguity, yeah. such as The Birds, or just, you know, horrifying as in Psycho. And, uh, but this is, um, I don't know, this, this is almost a feel-good ending, right? Yep. <laughs> or it is a feel-good ending. Yep. So, you get the same ending, the same type of ending in North by Northwest on the train, uh, yeah, exactly, but there's yeah. something different about this one because they're both awake in North and Northwest. So they're joined. There's still an apartness to this last scene in rear window, right? For the reasons that you pointed out, Walt, that he's asleep, she's awake. You know, they're, they're in two different consciousness here. Mm -hmm. And they both did bad things. I mean, yeah. for the most part. And, and so they're it's intruders. Yeah. And I found myself, so happy that he succeeded and that he's sleeping and that he's not compelled to be a voyeur anymore. And then so angry at myself for feeling that way. He gets a free pass. <laughs> well, not a free pass. He breaks his legs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yep. he could well, have done yeah, time. That's one of Hitchcock's, uh, you know, reoc recurring themes is the idea that, you know, not, all of us are not that far away from where these characters, you know, just one decision, a couple of decisions yeah. removed from where they are. And, um, that could happen to any of us if we're not vigilant <laughs> on, right. our, on our behavior and our ethics, et cetera. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, for me, it's, it's one of his, one of his best films. Oh, um, it's brilliant. It is. I, I kept wondering how the trial of Thorwald went though. <laughs> There's a lot of illegally obtained evidence and, uh, and and I'm almost surprised that that Jimmy Stewart's not sleeping in a jail cell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And Dar I think, Dora, Dora Mira. Uh, I I we think we you know we have to point out Hitchcock's cameo, right? I think we have yeah, to do that as usual, point. right? <laughs> it's 
yeah, obviously he had, he had some options here and, you know, and he always liked to do it early in the film. So people weren't spending their time looking for him uh, over enjoying the film, but he chooses to uh, make the cameo in the musician's uh, apartment. Why there versus, um, I don't know, any other. <laughs> I'm a trip was a completely random choice, but it's, it's kind of an interesting one. I'm, I'm not sure if it plays into the theme at all or anything more significant other than, you know, um, you know, it makes more, he probably have the most uh, outside guests coming in perhaps than the others other than yeah. Miss Torso, but he doesn't seem like a Miss Torso sort of suitor. <laughs> Is Hitchcock Hitchcock in all of his cameos? And maybe he's Alfred Hitchcock visiting this guy to do a musical score. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> he's never just a rando passerby. He's always right. Hitchcock, yeah. isn't he? So, I, I, well, Hitchcock, yeah. that's one. He would definitely not be in Miss Torso. She's not his leading lady type or his obsession type. Although he likes, she seems to like bald, stocky men, judging from the, <laughs> the fact that uh, her husband or fiance, whoever he is, comes yeah. in at the end. <laughs> um, can we just briefly... Uh, tip our caps to Thelma Ritter in her performance. I don't think she's, she's come up, you know, the, the insurance nurse. Oh, Estella. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, she was fantastic. Great character actress. And, uh, you know, she adds a lot of, um, homespun wisdom, right. To, uh, to his life that he kind of needs. He, she sets him straight. And I love some of her, uh, <laughs> I don't know, her folky, wisdom in terms of you know she goes on about how uh nothing has you know paraphrasing nothing has uh, caused more trouble in this world as intelligence yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's a dry sense of humor with her character that's wonderfully appealing right also the fact she's advising him look you know um you need to cut the crap here stop looking out the window you're gonna you're gonna find yourself explaining things trying to explain things to a judge um you know so she uh She's right on. And I love how she goes on about, you know, her relationship advice. Uh, she goes on to talk about how, you know, when I met my husband, we were both just a couple of maladjusted misfits. And 20 years later, we're still a couple of maladjusted yeah. mis- misfits and we've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> and just the whole idea of uh, it, it's, you know, it's true then. And there's some truth to that now that we just, we're just so cerebral sometimes with things. Um, that we forget, you know, the, we forget the gut and we forget the heart. And that's how she's approached life. And uh, ultimately, I guess when it comes down to it, the question is, are you happy yeah. with a lot of things? You know, um, and I, she might be the only character, one of the only characters in the entire film who could probably say, yes, yeah. <laughs> I've, I'm happy. I'm not lonely. And when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I can honestly say to myself that I'm living a fulfilled life, which none of the other characters have. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I noticed too, Detective Doyle, uh, he, he, you know, when he takes the time to look into the other windows, his expression, especially with Miss Torso, is the lechery that Jimmy Stewart's character is not showing. Yep. I mean, you can, you, and, and he, he, he leers a couple of times, not only at her, but at the fact that Lisa is going to spend the night. He's he's your best friend. He he's a Mercutio almost yeah. in terms of everything is a dirty joke to him. Which, and, yep. and right and Jeff and Jeff says be careful two or three <laughs> times to him when he when he looks down and if you know again yeah. it's just the you know just the camera shows us what he sees and it's her night night attire and yeah, uh, yeah I love that you <laughs> look and Jimmy Stewart's delivery of that of course is brilliant. Careful, Tom. His name yeah. Tom. Careful, Tom. It's fantastic. And um, so, so, can I ask if you guys can clarify what may or may not be plot holes for me here, or is it too nitpicky to question the plots of something? No, go ahead. Okay. Keep so, in mind, though, keep in mind though that Alfred Hitchcock said that um, there's nothing more. I don't know. I forgot how we put it, but inconvenient than a plot <laughs> to, to tell uh, a story. <laughs> Then you can tell me to stop if if, if I no if no I no no I'm, I'm very I'm curious yeah okay so Thorwald kills his wife cuts her up and takes parts of her out in the suitcase and puts her head in the garden okay we 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 kind of glean that over over the course of time but the whole thing with he's calling somebody long distance 
Someone checks in, calls in, saying she's Miss Thorwald. Other witnesses have seen her elsewhere. He packs up her clothes in a trunk tied together with rope. He keeps her jewelry, which then later disappears. What's going on there? Um, is it another woman who is complicit in the murder? Why is he shipping the clothes away? And what's up with the jewelry? I guess I don't understand what he's doing with all of that. I don't know. I, I, I just gathered that, yeah, there was another woman who um, perhaps shared some of the same physical attributes. So this um, is premeditated then? I don't know if it's premeditated. I think that he wanted to be with this other woman. His wife obviously didn't treat him well because we see instances of that. And whether he snapped or if it was premeditated, I, I think that's left deliberately ambiguous. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I just wasn't sure why he was shipping her clothes and why he held on to her jewelry. I guess they would, uh, maybe he needed money. Is he going to sell this? Is he going to pawn this stuff? Well, don't forget, he's a, he's a, a, a costume jewelry salesman, right? So what is costume jewelry other than fake jewelry? And, and the whole thing hinges on the fake wife, right? So I took it as he's sending the clothes to the fake wife, the mistress, to, as a kind of alibi. Yeah, exactly. That that you know, okay. He ha has to play into the idea that they're they're moving or going right. abroad or wherever they're going. Um, so it has to sort of play into the into his narrative there. Yeah. Okay. So. I'm just curious about it because it didn't seem to me to be other than serving as to add to Jeff's suspicion. What was what was going on with all that? There's a lot is made of that trunk and a lot is made of her jewelry, and her bag. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the detective Tom, I love his involvement too, because it, it doesn't make the murder or, or Jeff's idea of the of a murder a slam dunk. Right. You know, if you're if you're seeing this for the first time, you you can doubt it. You know, you can say, well, it's like any good murder mystery; it's not completely obvious. Um, and uh, certainly, judging by by Jeff's behavior, we can, upon verse viewing say to ourselves, oh, you know, he's just, it's just his imagination running wild. And this is where Hitchcock's taking us, but it turns out it's, he's right. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to say about a great film like this, but that's what a great film does. You know, we can talk about it for hours and still miss things, but I think we've brought up a lot of cool, uh, cool concepts here. And uh, I enjoyed watching this again. And of course I enjoyed discussing it with you guys. So I think more people need to see this movie, uh, especially given its relevance to our sort of modern voyeuristic existence. Yeah. Yeah. Often it's not okay. You know, if you want to tell someone to watch a Hitchcock movie, um, if they just want to get into Hitchcock for the first time, it's not always on the initial <laughs> list of suggestions. And right. I, I would definitely for me put it on that list, but, um, yeah, so, you know, anyone out there who's listening to this, uh, we'd love your feedback. We'd love to hear anything, um, any thoughts you have about uh, this great film or correct many of our factual errors, perhaps, that we've uh, <laughs> <laughs> stumbled we've, into. We've, uh, we've, yeah, we stated today. It, it, it happens. But um, uh, so, yeah, um, we'd like to, uh, well, I'd like to thank, uh, this is hopefully the, the first of uh, a few summer uh, episodes yeah. now that we are um, finished with the semester we hope to uh, do these with more frequency over over the summer and, and bring bring you guys uh, more episodes of uh, the classroom critics podcast but until our next episode uh, I'd like to thank my friends Andrew and Walt for joining me today and hope you guys could uh, comment on our Facebook page or um, rate us on iTunes we'd really appreciate that and until next time Thanks for joining us. See you next time.